Why can't our patients sleep in intensive care? We've covered this before, but let's talk about all the noise we make. Hello and welcome back to the Critical Care Practitioner podcast. For those of you that do follow me regularly, and I, I think there are a few, you might have noticed that I haven't released a podcast for some time, and that's because I've been having awful problems with my website, which were then reflected onto my podcasts as well, and I've only just managed to get them sorted out. Um, if you've been to my website recently, you may see that I've spent a long time redesigning it and making it a bit more navigable than it was. I was very concerned that it was a bit of a mess. So I spent a lot of time doing that. And then after I'd done that, uh, it went down. Uh, I couldn't get much joy from my uh, host, uh, Bluehost, who unfortunately have never let me down before. But this time I just wasn't getting any uh, answers from them that were helping me progress. So I've had to move it lock, stock and barrel to another company who are looking after it for me. It's cost me a bit of money, um, but we're up and running again now. And finally, the podcasts are also up and running. So I apologize for not having released one earlier. It's been well over a month and I don't like it being that long. Um, so hopefully you will find this one useful. This is with Julie Derbyshire, who is going to talk to me about uh, noise on ITU and how it affects the patient's sleep. So we have a long discussion about sleep in general and noise in particular. Um, I also want to tell you before I start about a conference I've just been to, which was the uh, Association of Chartered Physiotherapists in Respiratory Care. I was asked to go along and do some filming and some of their social media work. It was a fabulous conference. I met a few people there that I've never met before. So Emma Swingwood was there. She's the vice chair of the panel. Ian Culligan is the chair of the association. I met Nikki, um, who introduced herself at the dinner table, and uh, she listens to my podcast, so it was nice to meet her. Rachel Moses was also at the dinner table with me. You may have heard Rachel on previous podcasts. She's always good value, and she gave a lovely presentation about how we uh, can help um, inspire each other and the video at the end that she did with good music was about some of the inspirations in other people's careers as well as her own so that was uh, a good a good presentation there uh, what's coming up well I'm getting very excited now because I'm going to the American Association of Critical Care Nurses Conference in Orlando which is uh, at the time of recording in about two and a half weeks so um, it's getting very very close now and I'm really really looking forward to it uh, a for a bit of sun and b to meet all those American nurses as well so if there's any American nurses in my audience and I believe there might be um, and you are at that conference please 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 come and say hello I'd love to meet you um the first day i'm going to be wearing a union jack t-shirt and a union jack hat so i should be fairly visible i hope um but please don't hesitate if i look like i'm busy please tap me on the shoulder say hello and you never know i might stick a microphone under your mouth as well don't have to but if you've got something to say it would be lovely to chat to you okay without further ado let's crack on with this podcast and again apologies for it being a bit overdue but hopefully you'll still get good value from it Hello and welcome back to the Critical Care Practitioner podcast. My name is Jonathan Down and for those of you that haven't listened to me before, um, I am joined today by Julie Derbyshire. Now, I spotted Julie on Twitter as I seem to get all my willing victims on there um, and I saw that she was tweeting about sleep in the intensive care patient and this is a subject that's very dear to my heart um, and 
Uh, hence, I spoke to Julie via Twitter and she's agreed to chat to us. So, Julie, just introduce yourself first and, and tell me why you are interested in sleep. Gosh, okay. Um, so, yes, hi, Jonathan. It's lovely to talk to you. Um, so, as you've just said, um, my name's Julie Derbyshire and I'm based with the Critical Care Research Group at Oxford. Um, we're affiliated to the Oxford University Hospitals NHS Trust and it's through the lovely people in the intensive care unit that we're able to do quite a lot of our research. Um, specifically sleep, um, I'm not clinical and when I started to work with the research group, um, Duncan Young, who's the senior clinical lead, he took me down to the intensive care unit and I was quite surprised by what it was. Um, I've seen intensive care on the telly. I thought I knew what it looked like. And of course it doesn't. It's much busier than I expected. Um, there's a lot more going on. Um, and I was quite surprised to see patients sitting up and having their breakfast. So we got back upstairs and I mentioned all of this to Duncan and he said, yes, that's what our patients say too. <laughs> they come back to clinic and they say it's noisy, they can't sleep, it's not what they're expecting. At which point I thought, okay, <laughs> has anyone ever tried to do anything about this? Um, and basically what Duncan said was lots of people have looked at it um, Noise and busyness is a problem in the intensive care unit. Knock yourself out. Um, so I went away, did a little bit of research. I discovered that, yes, indeed, the intensive care unit has been noisy since like forever. Um, earliest papers I found about noise levels um, were, went back to the mid 70s. And it doesn't seem to be changing. Nothing seems to be making this any better. If anything, it's getting louder. Mm -hmm. And the effect of this is as the majority of patients who come back to clinic say they can't sleep when they're in the intensive care unit mm -hmm. if you start looking into what makes a good sleep environment you would not come up with the intensive care unit. <laughs> you'd probably get more success sleeping on the local station platform I would imagine. <laughs> yeah um so so just just quickly julie just to go back a, a step or two what is your background then um, so um, I, I come from the dark arts, I think, um, most people in medicine would say. Um, I've got a history in English literature um, and I came through the research line through research management and research coordination. Um, and at some point about four years ago, I decided it would be a good idea to do a PhD. Okay. And how far down the line are you with the PhD? I am about to submit a thesis. Oh, awesome. Okay. So <laughs> this is this is precious time we're swallowing up here because I can imagine that it's probably taken over your world, hasn't it? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. And, <laughs> and your, I love talking about it. Your thesis is on sleep, presumably. Um, it's more about noise levels, um, okay. actually. Um, very early on, we discovered that measuring sleep in the intensive care unit was actually quite difficult to do. Um, so switched focus to noise levels, which are rather more objective, a little bit less ne nebulous. And uh, yeah, you can have an outcome that you can measure. 
Yeah. Okay. So um, let's just briefly talk about sleep because um, there there are some people out, out there who, who perhaps like myself a couple of years ago thought, okay, you go to sleep, you dream and you wake up and that's it really, isn't it? But if we break down sleep, there's there's two there's two stages, isn't there? Very much there's this um, non-rapid eye movement sleep or NREM sleep, and then there's REM sleep, so rapid eye movement sleep. And in REM sleep, that's that's when we uh, are, are dreaming. Um, and the NREM sleep is divided into three separate stages, which are, are really the depth of your sleep, aren't they? So you've got um, N1, N2, and N3. Yes. Now, um, I want to mention uh, an excellent book that I'm reading at the moment. And if anyone is out there who's interested in why we sleep, you, you should read it. And it's called Why Why Do We Sleep? And I'm madly looking at my spot, uh, uh, my Audible now because I can't remember who it's by. Bear with me. I can edit this bit out. This is by... Alan, no, Matthew Walker, um, and it's called Why We Sleep, The New Science of Sleep and Dreams. And it's it's a fascinating book. And one of the things that's very evident from that is that the um, NREM and the REM sleep have two very different purposes. And our early night sleeping is dominated by NREM sleep and our later night sleeping. So you know, the hours before we start to wake up is dominated mainly by our REM sleep. And I was listening to it this morning, um, as I do on on the dog walk. Um, and one of the, the experiments that they uh, had was um, on some patients who were, it was over a week. Uh, I can't remember how many patients there were, but there weren't that many. Um, and these poor, these poor, not patients, they were, they were, um, uh, subjects in the in the experiment so they weren't patients at all they were completely healthy individuals so they were allowed a night's sleep they had uh, probes stuck on their head and as soon as they entered into REM sleep they were woken up and uh, asked to do a few simple uh, maths questions which I would struggle if when, when I'm wide awake let alone when I'm half asleep um, and then they were allowed to go back to sleep until they went into REM sleep again and they were woken up again so they were never allowed to enter into REM sleep sleep. Now, um, you might want to correct me if I'm wrong here, Julie, but I suspect our patients um, probably spend most of their ITU stay never going into REM sleep, or if they do, it's only very briefly. Um, but the side effects of that after a week of this is that they started to, and this will ring, tr a lot of people will hear this and see this in their own units week in week out they started to become delusional they started to hallucinate they started to become psychotic and they started to become paranoid that sounds very familiar to to the patients that i look after on a regular basis so we all get very excited about um the amount of sedation we give our patients but i some ways it's not necessarily the sedation we're giving them it's the fact that we're depriving them of normal sleep is that a fair summary julie do you think absolutely and i am not surprised that those poor people in that experiment experienced what they did um we've looked at sleep um in some of the oxford patients now we had quite a small monitor um, it was only three leads whereas i imagine the people in the experiment in the book, they had full polysomnography mm. with probably up to about 20 leads. So much, much less onerous for our patients. But what we found was that the patients that we measured, the average sleep that they had was about two hours. 
a night. Okay. And of that two hours, only seven minutes was REM sleep and 13 minutes was deep, slow wave sleep. Mm. So if you contrast that with what you'd expect to see in normal, healthy sleep at home in your dark and quiet bedroom, mm. you'd expect to have about 20 to 30% of each. And yep. what we had is that seven minutes is 6% of REM and the 13 minutes is about 10% of the slow wave restorative sleep and and this sleep this two hours they're getting of course they're not getting two hours of solid sleep are they you know i've read papers where um they, they estimate the amount of sleep patients get and they get this sleep not just at night they're getting this sleep on and off throughout the whole 24 hours so this two hours is going to be spread over the 24 hours you know where they're going to be sleeping for minutes at a time rather than um hours at a time Yes, absolutely. So we did restrict our um, study to overnight. So the two hours that we saw was overnight. But it's true. They patients slept for one to two minutes at a time before waking up again. So they never got the opportunity to be asleep long enough for their natural sleep cycle to kick in and allow them to get to REM sleep, let alone slow wave sleep. Yeah. And it 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 you know, I mean, well, let's get back to that. Let's let's come back to your your studies in particular, and we'll talk about the other stuff later because I, mm. I I think this is a fascinating subject, and I've really enjoyed listening to the book. and And, and as a consequence, I I am a little bit concerned that we are approaching delirium from from um, slightly the wrong emphasis from my point of view. So. There's two papers um, that you sent me, both of which are very interesting reading. Um, and I think we'll start with the first one, which is, uh, hang on, it's just hidden. It. Measuring sleep in the intensive care unit, um, electroencephalogram act actigraphy or questionnaire. Now, it, you'll have to forgive me. Actigraphy? What is that? Yep. So do you have a Fitbit or an Apple Watch? I don't, but I know what they are. So that, that's what they use. So actigraphy, uh, we, it was a wrist-worn device, so it looked like a standard wristwatch. Um, and it measures the movement or the activity of the limb that it was attached to. Mm -hmm. Now, we, <laughs> in the normal human adult, <laughs> this is a fairly good representation of sleep because we're quite active during the day and move our arms around and the system knows that we're awake. We then go to bed and don't move very much. Mm. So the system knows we're asleep. Unfortunately, when we tried to use this in the intensive care unit patients, they don't move very much at all. So it either massively overestimated their sleep um, or on the very few number of patients that we had that were quite restless, it then didn't detect sleep at all because they were always wriggling. Mm. So the actigraphy, whilst it was a good idea, um, it was, to all intents and purposes, quite cheap. It was extremely well tolerated, but it just wasn't up to the task. Okay. And actigraphy, how much does that tell you? Does that tell you anything about the stages of sleep somebody's in or does it just tell you they're asleep or they're awake? I think it, some, some do. Um, there are some sleep apps that basically work on this method. Um, you can download them to your phone um, and they will give some attempt at telling you whether what sort of sleep you're in. Mm. Um, 
for our purposes, all it said was asleep or not asleep. And as I said, it wasn't very accurate at that either. Okay, so um, encephal- uh, electroencephalograms. Now, presumably, this is this is uh, a, an EEG, basically, isn't it? So you get all the little things over the patient's head that are looking at the waveforms. And am I right? Is it is it delta waves you measure in sleep? It was um, oh gosh, um, alpha waves and delta waves. Right. Um, we had it was a three lead EEG. Okay, and the system that we had it was called the sleep profiler Mm. and it was designed for home use um now if you're going to use this at home it's not cheap but it was quite small and as i said only used three leads so didn't require 20 leads stuck all over a patient's head we didn't have problems with glue in the hair and that Mm -hmm. kind of thing it was a very simple device to use so three eeg dots across the forehead. Um, there is an otter, there's a fourth dot that we could have put on the jaw. Um, this would measure the um, sort of other bits and pieces that were going on, but we didn't have that. We then ran it through the standard algorithms. So from our point of view, we didn't investigate the brain waves. We let the system do it for us. I think this was quite successful, actually. Which, which, um, which kind of patients got, did you put it on? They were mostly patients who right. were not sedated. Um, we did have a couple of patients who were sedated mm-hmm. and ventilated. And the idea was, was to try and see if the, the EEG waves mm. were different and could the system detect sleep in mm. patients who were sedated. We... We only had two or three, and their profile, when we looked at it, was just so different from each other that we couldn't say anything sensible about generally okay. patients who were sedated. So the majority of our patients were, <laughs> to all intents and purposes, awake patients. And, yeah. oh boy, were they yeah. awake. <laughs> and how many of those patients were CAM positive? Um, almost none. Um, I think, I think two. Out of how many? But that was at some point during their stay. So not necessarily when we gave the, um, when we put the monitoring okay. on overnight. And, and you got what you would consider to be useful information from the EEG then? Yeah, I would. Um, we got very, very similar results from other studies that have used full 20 lead polysomnography. So I would be confident in using this. Okay. The the questionnaire thing um, seems quite interesting. What kind of questions were you asking? And presumably you were asking the patients these questions because they're the only ones who can really judge their sleep, aren't they, from from a purely uh, subjective point of view? I think the answer to that would be, Mm. it would appear so. So, so yeah, so we use the Richards Campbell sleep questionnaire. Um, it's quite widely used, um, I think. Um, it's the one that if you ask intensive care people if they've heard of a sleep questionnaire, it's the one that most mm-hmm. people mention. It has been validated. Um, the original study that validated it did compare the answers to the questions against uh, polysomnography. So, on an individual 
patient response basis, it's a pretty good measure of sleep. It's, it's sort mm. of the best we've got. What we thought we'd try and do is we thought we would recognise that patients in intensive care can't always really think about their sleep when they wake up, mainly because they haven't had any. Um, but you know, some patients mm. can't even hold a pen. So filling in a questionnaire by hand mm. can be quite hard. So we thought we'd work with this and we would ask overnight nurse um, to fill in the questionnaire on behalf of the patient. And then we would correlate those results against what the patient told us. Okay. We thought this okay. was a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> what we found is that we might just as well have stuck our fingers up in the air and grabbed a random number. Um, there was To say there's no correlation is clearly not true, but the correlation was really, really poor. Um, I wouldn't be confident to be able to say that somebody else can assess so so just sleep. just just to just and well just to clarify that do you mean that the nurse was was assessing the patient's level of sleep right yes there are a few questions on the Richards Campbell sleep questionnaire there um how quickly did you fall asleep or how quickly did the patient fall asleep um did you wake up a lot overnight um when you woke up, were you able to fall asleep again quite quickly? Um, uh, what were the noise levels like mm. overnight? Uh, that sort of thing. They, I mean, it's a it's a visual analog scale. It goes from zero to a hundred, um, so you end up with a percentage of how you think you slept. Um, and the way that it works is it's really simple mathematically in that you have a number. You have five questions that go, so the answers go from naught to 100, and then you divide everything so, by five. You end up with a single percentage value for okay. sleep. Okay, so overnight. what was happening was that the nurse was saying one thing and the patient was saying another. Is is that, was that what, yeah, okay. Um, yes. But that, yes, exactly. So consistently the nurses would overestimate the quality and quantity okay. of sleep. Okay. Equally, um, and again, this is something from the book that, uh, that I've read, we are not necessarily the best person to judge our own sleep pattern either because we will often misjudge how much sleep we have or haven't had. Um, very That's typically, very people suffering with what they would call insomnia are very bad judges of actually how much sleep they've had. So um, even if the patient says they've had lots of sleep, or they've had very little sleep, that in itself is is not necessarily a true reliable measure, is it? That's kind of the problem we've got here, isn't it? Yeah, that's exactly the problem. So in the six months or so before we started to recruit patients, uh, I did a healthy volunteer study using the EEG kit that we then subsequently used on patients. Um, and it was really interesting that people would come back to me and they'd say, oh, I had a terrible night's sleep. And then I'd look at the data and they'd go, yeah. no, you didn't. <laughs> um, and the other happened as well. So people would come in and their questionnaire would indicate that they had an amazing night's sleep. But the EEG data said something different. So there are two questions. One is, mm. does it matter how much sleep someone gets? Is the question really 
how much sleep does mm-hmm. someone think they've had um, on the basis that it's how you feel in the morning yep. that matters. If you feel you've had a bad night's sleep, even if you've had your perfect levels of REM and non-REM and slow wave sleep, if you still feel rubbish, then being told that you had a great night's Absolutely. sleep isn't going to And as far as does it matter whether we get enough sleep or not, again, I'm going to go back to this book. I'm going to keep banging on about this because anyone that's listening, go read it. It's brilliant. Uh, um, go read it. It's brilliant. The, it's, it talks about the use of sleep deprivation in um, torture. Now, I'm not saying that we are torturing our patients, not deliberately, um, but um, they were saying that uh, what a common, commonly used method, which is now um, approved, believe it or not, by the US government, and actually in one of their training manuals for the army or the navy or whoever, um, it's in one of their training manuals, is that you will not allow... Um, the prisoner to get more than four hours sleep every day for up to four weeks. Now, I reckon some of our patients probably experience that, don't they? And as a consequence, these people, um, these prisoners are willing to give up whatever secrets you like just so that they can get some sleep. So understanding why our patients can sometimes become aggressive, delirious, hallucinating, um, paranoid, psychotic, all those terms, I think is perfectly understandable. Um, And I I do feel quite strongly at the moment, having listened to this and spoken to you and and read these articles, that it's not something that we are trying to do enough about, quickly enough about. But before we go there, I just want to talk about the second paper you sent me as well. And this is called Measuring Sleep in the Intensive Care Unit, a Critical Appraisal of the Use of Subjective Methods. So tell me about this paper and and the conclusions that you um, came to. Yeah, so this was when we were looking at, well, what methods should we use to measure sleep in the intensive care unit? And rather obviously, we started off by looking at what everybody else had done, because the only way you can really gather a lot of information is by doing some sensible comparisons. What we found was that there were a few usual suspects that kept coming up. The Richards Campbell Sleep Questionnaire was one of those. But there was an awful lot of people who had looked at what was available for one reason or another, and usually quite sensible reasons, had decided that it didn't quite do what they wanted it to do. So there's a lot of additions to questionnaires. There's a lot of slight tweaks. Um, And of course, what this does is if you start with a validated questionnaire and you mess with it, then it no longer Mm. becomes a validated questionnaire. Um, so there's a lot of uh, sort of unofficial acknowledgement that the methods of measuring sleep in the ICU just aren't really mm. up to scratch. Um, so we went with the Richards Campbell Sleep Questionnaire. Um, it's the one that's validated. It's the one that a lot of people use. Therefore, we could report results using it and it would mean something to other people looking at this area. But it has its yeah, as, as we've already discussed, it's, it's, you know, clarifying how much sleep I think the ITU patient is getting, be it sedated or non-sedated, is, is quite a difficult thing to pin down, isn't it? But I think, I think we can probably agree that they're not getting enough sleep, whatever tool we use. Um, 
it's an anecdotally and the fact that our patients become delirious, which we can blame on lots of other factors as well. But I think it's fair to say that the patients aren't getting enough sleep, do you think? Okay. Absolutely. Patients, patients in hospital and in intensive care in particular do not okay i know whenever i'm admitted to hospital which doesn't happen that often but when it has the first thing i've sent my wife home for is an eye shield and some earplugs because i know that i won't get any sleep otherwise because you know i've been a nurse on those wards and and nurses don't keep their voices down uh they chat about their day's activity all night long um and then anyone comes on and you know that everything's done at reasonable volume really and intensive care is probably much much worse than that so let's talk about one of the things that stops a patient sleeping and it would be the one thing that would stop me sleeping because i'm very sensitive to it um is 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 noise why are we making so much noise and what are we trying to do about it well i think the first thing i guess to is to acknowledge that the intensive care unit is a 24-hour environment. Um, Humans have evolved to have a circadian rhythm. Um, This is some hours of activity and some hours of rest. You can debate how much of each you want, but basically 24 hours of full-on activity isn't what we're evolved for. So part of the problem with ICUs is that there is no day-night rhythm or the very little day-night rhythm Um, and as part of the research projects that we were doing that the NIHR funded for us was that we spent quite a lot of time in the local ICUs in Oxford um, overnight and just kind of sat around and watched what was going on so fancy term for this is ethnography but basically we just sat in the corner and watched Mm -hmm. and wrote notes and it was particularly noticeable that on the nights that where lights were left on, and that didn't necessarily relate to nights that were particularly busy from a mm-hmm. patient care point of view, they were noisier. And it's as if staff working overnight, if it's dark, they kind of recognise that it's it's nighttime and it's sleepy time and voices were hushed. When the lights were on, Mm. that didn't happen. Now, the physical environment of the Oxford ICU is that it's in the basement and it's pretty dark all the time. So the lights are on almost all of the time. In other units, it won't be like this. And there are some units that have large windows and there's a lot of natural daylight. So there's not the need to put lights on during the day in quite the same way but what we hypothesize from this is that people coming into the unit for their night shift for them it's their day yeah they are upside down so in order to keep themselves awake and behave normally then it's not quite the same as coming in and being aware that it's night so once we pointed this out um there was quite a lot of oh yeah i hadn't noticed that yeah you're right um so we suggested some kind of lights out policy now obviously you can't have the lights off all the time all night we know that um and not at all what we're suggesting but 
to have the idea that you prepare the unit for bed mm-hmm. sometime between nine and ten, and then leave it like that for as long as you can. If the lights need to go on, then they go on, but remember to turn them off again, and then sort of wake the unit up from about six o'clock in the morning. So kind of just enforce a bit more of the natural circadian rhythm. Whether this has an effect on sleep, I don't know, but it does have an effect on noise levels. Um, and a darker night okay. is a quieter night. One of the things that I've seen recently popping up in various ICUs are these screens that you have on the wall that um, will do something to tell you that everybody's being too noisy. Uh, I have reservations about them because from what this is anecdotal again from various people I've spoken to they say that yeah initially they make a difference but then eventually everyone just ignores them Uh, is is this something you've come across yeah and I'd agree with that um so there's there's two problems with them one is you can go in and you can go oh you've got one of these um light up alarms and people go yes and I go well interesting it's it's lit up (laughs) yes it's always like that (laughs) so there's there's a massive complacency that it's just this is what it is it's 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 noisy it's like that we expect it there's nothing we can do about it um so the the other problem with the light light up you're being too noisy now signals is that it doesn't have a memory so it's quite instant. So if you're standing underneath it and talking, mm. it's lit up like a Christmas tree. Um, and then you move away and it is quiet and then it goes away again. But it's at that point when you stopped doing whatever it was that you were doing that was making the noise. That as staff in the ICU, you've got time to look at it. So you look at it and it's not telling you that you're being noisy. So you can't kind of relate what you're doing in the moment the noise because at that moment you're faffing around and i've been reliably told that's a <laughs> technical term faffing around and looking after the patient um and and not looking at the noise levels so there's no opportunity to sort of sit back reflect think about what you've done think about what is creating the noise and therefore you just have no idea as to what you can do to make a difference other than accept okay it's noisy. so maybe this is an unfair question but what can we do to make a difference to the noise levels that you think might actually be done? Because my concern, and I'm probably going to make a few enemies in the critical care world now, but my concern is that staff won't be quieter. They will go about their business as they always do. They will have an inclination to turn a light on whenever not necessarily even needed, but whenever they feel it's appropriate. Um, And as a consequence, our patients are never going to get a good night's sleep from a noise point of view. I think you're partly right. Um, So as part of the research project, we started off by asking staff and patients what they thought might make a difference. Um, we had a group meeting and we all sat around and tables and had very nice cups of tea and cake and just had a chat about, well, what could we do? What would make a difference? And we spent the whole afternoon kind of deliberating this issue and people were saying, well, yes, but you know, we need to put the lights on and we need to do this. And, and patients accepted all of this. 
And then right at the end, it was we, we were packing up and, and just and about to leave. And one of the patients just said, and he was quite cross about it. And he said, Do you know, if staff just knew what it was like, they they they'd behave differently. Uh, which was fine. And we all went, ah oh, ha ha, and and yes, that's lovely. Um and then I went away and thought about this and had a chat with some medical educationalists and we created an experience for staff that puts them in the position of an ICU patient. It's mm. been incredibly popular um, mm. and it's quite a visceral experience. Um, it only lasts about five minutes and what happens is we put staff member and it's, it can be for anybody, doesn't matter who they are. We've had nurses, physios, doctors and the cleaning staff. They've all done it. We put them in bed. Um, we give them some glasses that blur their vision a bit because quite a lot of mm. ICU patients can't see very well. And we play them a scenario of something that's happening in the ICU. And at the same time, we have a bit of live action and move around the bed and you know, doing the standard <laughs> faffing about activities. What, what this has done is almost everyone, and it's like 94, 95% of people who, when they sit up again, they look a bit shell-shocked and they say, mm. I had no idea. So a little bit of personal experience really drives home the message of even a little bit of noise and confusion for five minutes can make you feel a bit uneasy and a bit scared and a bit like you don't want, don't know what's going on. So over time, we have been measuring noise levels in our ICU in Oxford. And I can't definitely say that it's something to do with this. Um, we also got clang, the bin list, clang, which was a no-brainer and a very, very clang, easy win. Yeah. So we've got plastic lids now, and that really makes a difference. Um, so that, but over the period of about twelve months, we've dropped our noise levels. We've we've gone down by about seven decibels. Now, in sound technology terms, we've nearly wow. halved the noise level in the mm. ICU. It'll be down to a few things. It'll be down to talking about noise level, talking about the importance of keeping it quiet, talking about the importance of sleep, making people more aware. It will be partly that at least 50% of the staff now have a bit of an idea of what it's like to be a patient. Um, and it will be a result of some of the other things that we've done. Um, I, I put the bins in just before mm. Christmas um, a couple of years ago, went in just mm. after Christmas and was accosted by about five people that said, <laughs> are you the bin lady? <laughs> um, yes, I think so. And they said, Excellent. we love you. Okay. They're amazing. Um, I mean, I, I think there is an awful lot of other things that we could do potentially. Um, but I think maybe that's to be explored in the future. You know, I, I think one of the things that um, is helping certainly from a unit I worked in is uh, things like uh, having more side rooms. Now, I know that creates issues for the nursing staff as far as uh, looking after patients who um, are remote in as much as they've got a wall between them. But I've certainly been aware that the noise levels are dramatically reduced if, if patients are in side rooms, as you would expect. And I would think that perhaps there 
um, sleep might be improved, whether anyone's actually done a study on that. Do you, do you, would you know if anyone's done a study on something like that? Um, some of our patients were inside rooms and some of them weren't. Um, there wasn't an obvious difference, but we only had very small numbers. Um, there are a few places around the country that are looking at sleep and noise levels. It is true that the side rooms are quieter and that's sort mm. of obvious when you think about it in that there's only one patient and one patient's set of equipment, whereas in a room of so in Oxford we've got up to up to about eight or nine yeah. in one one space. So if the if the ICU is full, there are a lot of patients. There's a lot of there's a lot of coming and going, um, and there's a lot of alarms going. Off. Okay, I mean, I, I you know. So yes, I think I think re- restructuring the ICU for side rooms, patients will think that's great nurses you're right less so it's quite isolating mm. okay um right I, I i think probably we we've covered that subject very very well i'm fascinated to know what the results of your phd are i know we can't necessarily cover that now because you're you're in the uh, towards the end of actually submitting it but um, i think it will be a fascinating study i'm sure there's a lot of conclusions on there that um, you will hopefully be sharing with us in the future Yes. Excellent. Okay. Um, thank you very much, Julie, for talking to me. Um, this has become a bit of a passion of mine. Um, I am anticipating that I will be approaching you again in the future because this is a topic I think that just needs to be keep, keep revisited really. Um, and I think the idea of uh, having regular meetings or at least having it as a regular discussion on a unit is probably the minimum we can do for now. And it's not a difficult thing to do, is it? You know, just make people aware of it. Um, I appreciate it. And I was, I was playing devil's advocate a little bit there um, because like I say, I, I am just as guilty, but I, I do think it's something that we need to c- continue to address. We do have patients who develop delirium and we know that that development of delirium um, increases their length of stay in the ITU, in the hospital, and also has an impact on their uh, mortality and more so, you know, it's crucial that we get this right, uh, or it's at least crucial that we make every effort we can to try and minimise the impact that it has upon our patients. So thank you very much. Um, when are you likely, uh, you say you're submitting the PhD, is that very, very soon? It's scarily soon. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, September, October. Okay. Something like that. Fabulous. Um, but papers are coming out of it um, before that. Did- We've already... Did I see you presenting at the uh, European Society of Intensive Care Medicine as well? Yes, yes, you did. I thought I did. And how did that go? That was really good. Okay. Um, it was a long way to go for three minutes, but, you know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, and might we see you at the Intensive Care Society meeting in Birmingham at all this year? Yeah, probably. Um, that's in December, isn't it? It is, yeah. Yeah, almost certainly. Okay, well, in that case... There's I, lots of things that we can pull out of this. Yes, I will pester you there. Um, I tend to be wandering around with a microphone and a camera an awful lot at those meetings, so um, I will catch up with you there, hopefully. Cool. All right. Thanks for talking to me, Julie. Thanks for taking the time, and uh, I'll let you get back to your PhD. Oh, that's okay. It's been a pleasure. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to Critical Care Practitioner. If you would like to comment on any of today's topics... Find us at criticalcarepractitioner.co.uk Tweet us at ccpractitioner 
Find us at facebook.com slash criticalcarepractitioner or search Critical Care Practitioner on iTunes. <laughs> <laughs>